gospel depth and gospel breadth. Why don't I pray and then we'll get started this morning. Father, we come before you today and we are gathered as your people to hear from your word and to be transformed by your spirit and and from this place then to be sent out into our week uh, and all of the things that we do, going to work and taking care of kids or uh, just all of the different things going on in our lives, uh, to remember that we are always on mission for you as well. And so, God, we pray that this morning would be a, a great huddle for us as a church to huddle with you and, and with one another and ultimately to walk out of this place changed and transformed as we were just singing about uh, by our time in your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Romans 15, verses 14 to 21, and I'm going to admit I'm a little depressed because we are, have reached the final section of Paul's letter to the Romans. And I'm depressed because I have thoroughly enjoyed my time uh, on what I referred to earlier on as this roller coaster of a letter uh, written by the Apostle Paul, what Martin Luther called the purest gospel. And I'm a little sad to see it coming to an end, but I'm also rejoicing because I know that in the last year that we've been going through this book of Romans, I know that God has transformed and challenged and changed our church both in tangible ways and also intangible ways and set a foundation for us in the gospel. But the good news is, so I'm a little depressed about that, but the good news is, is that the ride is not quite yet over. And with just a chapter and a half left, now with the body of the letter basically done, what we're going to see from here on out is basically Paul's final words and greetings to the church in Rome over the next couple of weeks. And so as Paul begins to wind down the letter, what we're going to see this week is Paul wants to clarify a few things for his readers in order that they might better understand who he is, this person writing to them, uh, his purpose in writing to them, and what his focus uh, for himself and for them is to be moving forward, both for himself as an apostle and a missionary to the Gentiles. But as we do that, and in order to bring the subject of this letter into our day and age, uh, I want us to think about this concept of gospel depth and gospel breadth, meaning that the gospel should go deep in our lives and the gospel should also go out into the world. And in some of the experiences I have had in talking with other Christians or interacting with other churches is that there seems to be an imbalance between this, these two truths about the gospel, the gospel going deeper and the gospel going wide. Uh, some sort of see the gospel as either one of those two things. And, and again, these can be referred to in these two ways. And oftentimes what you'll see are Christians or churches imbalanced in their application of this movement of the gospel. What you will see are people focusing on, those who have more of a focus on gospel depth, exclusively on things like Christian education, conferences, theological training, family discipleship, 
all really good things. We should be doing all of those things. But they do it to such a degree that they forget or neglect their calling, that the gospel is also to go out of these four walls and out of the body of believers, out into the world and reach non-Christians with the saving message of Jesus. However, on the flip side of that, and to be honest, this is more my experience, maybe probably your experience uh, in churches, is they make the opposite imbalance. And they focus so much on getting the gospel out there that they neglect the gospel depth in their own congregations. And they, they preach what you would call shallow, watered-down sermons, and, and they create what people have called churches that are a mile wide, but only an inch deep. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. This is not a criticism of Christian growth, and it's not a criticism of intentional evangelism. This is a call to hold both of those aspects, those movements of the gospel in a healthy ministry balance, that the gospel both goes deep into the lives of Christians, transforming us into the image of Jesus, and the gospel is to go out into the world in order that they might be saved. And I don't know what your natural inclination is. Actually, for some of you, I do know because I know you and I've gotten to know you well enough where when we talk about things, I can see where your mind naturally wants to drift. You naturally want to think about growing deeper or some of you naturally think about outreach. And what we're talking about this morning is both of those things matter and we need to hold them in balance. And so Paul is going to describe for us his gospel ministry and how he holds both of these things in balance. And in short, what Paul writes here at the end of his letter is that as an apostle, he has worked tirelessly at producing strong and healthy churches who are embodying the ethic of the gospel and who are competent in the gospel and able to teach it to others. And as a missionary to the world, he wants to see the gospel going out into all of the nations, producing churches, that produce churches, that produce more churches to the glory of God. So we're going to see that this morning. We're going to start reading in verse 14 of Romans 15 down <coughs> to verse 21. Paul writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly, by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, 
Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Whoever brought this to me, thank you. I don't know who this was, but I appreciate it. Joel Simon, thank you. Appreciate you. Um, in verse 14, as Paul begins this, the end, he begins the end of this epic letter, much like he began in chapter one, he wants to make sure that his readers understand his heart, his desire in writing to them in the first place. For those of you who communicate, well, we all kind of communicate because many have social media and you know the moment you say something, you're misunderstood. And that's just the way it works. But one of the most difficult things about communication is that it is easy to be misunderstood, especially if you're speaking clearly or passionately or authoritatively about an important subject matter. And oftentimes when this happens, your hearers, those who are listening to what you're saying, instinctively feel offended or confused, saying to themselves, who does this person think they are talking to me like this? And that can easily happen in communication. Now, the best way to overcome this, of course, is to actually know the people that you're talking to. This is why social media doesn't work, because... We don't actually know these people and you're just throwing it out there and people respond to what they're hearing, not to where it's coming from because there's no personal relationship there. And of course, so it's, it's good to know the people you're talking to and vice versa, right? It's also good to know the person that you are hearing from. And, and yet in Paul's case, he had a problem because neither of them, both his readers in Rome nor himself, knew one another. He knew some of them, but he didn't know the entire church, and they did not know him because he, as we've already discussed before, did not plant this church in Rome, and he had yet to visit this church. Other churches in the New Testament, like uh, Ephesus and Colossae and Corinthians and all of these things, they knew Paul because Paul planted those churches there. They knew him because he went and first brought the gospel to them. In many ways, he was their spiritual Father. They knew Jesus because they met Paul and he shared Christ with them. And so because they knew his heart and they knew his personality and they knew his pet peeves and they knew all of these things about him, he could write strongly to them because they're like, oh, that's just Paul. That's just how Paul writes sometimes, you know? And, and they weren't offended by it, but not the Romans. They had never met him, and certainly they had heard things about the famous or maybe infamous Apostle Paul, the man, the myth the legend, but reputations don't always reflect the reality. And Paul knows this. He knows he's at a disadvantage as a communicator, and it's a recipe for misunderstanding that he can write so boldly or strongly, and yet they don't know him personally. And so he wants to relate with them. And so he ends the way he started, by softening the tone and telling them, hey, I'm aware that your church, that you guys are great people. <laughs> that you are full of moral goodness. You are demonstrating the ethic of the gospel in your relationships with one another. And, and then he says, you're competent. You know the gospel and you know what to do in certain situations. And, and you have the ability to instruct or admonish one another. If you see someone going down the wrong path, you can help them come back. And, and this is an amazing, this isn't flattery. This is Paul saying, I know this about you. Now, side note, Paul is not suggesting that every single individual 
member of the church in Rome was fully competent and, and always perfect in all they did and fully qualified to instruct, uh, instruct one another. What he is saying instead is that within that body of believers, uh, within their fellowship corporately, they did not lack what they needed to be a healthy and thriving gospel-centered church. That within their congregation uh, were people who possessed the gifts needed to build up the body of Christ, that collectively they had the three most important ingredients for a healthy church, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God. And with that combination, they are able to do all that God desired for them to do, which is an encouraging thing to hear from this apostle Paul, a man they didn't really know, but it was encouraging to know that he wasn't coming to them as some pontificating authority telling them what they already somewhat know. However, from this kind and cordial introduction to the end of his letter, Paul then moves from verse, or in verses 15 and 16 to explain his purpose in writing them. He says, basically, but on some points, I have written to you very boldly. And to we, we would all say the understatement of the century, right? Very bold letter, the book of Romans. And he says, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God <clears throat> to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. So we see here that the first reason that he gives this church for why he's writing this letter was just simply to give them a reminder of what they already know about the gospel. In other words, Paul is saying that whatever he has written so far, now think back to your understanding of what he has written in Romans. He's saying, what I've written so far was not or should not have been new information for you, the believers in Rome. And I thought, isn't that an amazing thing to say? And, and I thought about it for me personally. I've been a Christian for 17 years. I have read this letter several times. I am about to finish preaching through this letter for over a year, and I still feel like I don't really comprehend what Paul is saying in Romans, and, and I haven't got it all figured out, which, and so to say something like that is truly amazing, which has left some to wonder, is Paul being somewhat hyperbolic with this statement, or does he genuinely know that they are fully aware of all these truths contained in this letter. Regardless, it's a fascinating thing to consider, but it's a good reminder to us that as Christians, it is important for us to always come back to the reminder of the gospel, the sim simple message that God exists, that he made you and me in his image and likeness, that we sinned against him and that we could do nothing to save ourselves, but God did everything to save us by sending his son Jesus into this world to live the life we couldn't live and to die the death that we deserved. And if we believe in that message, we can have a relationship with God once again and hope for eternity. That message, we never move off of that message. If we do, we will fall into one of two extremes. We will either fall into legalism and religion and morality, or we will fall into license and irreligion and just godlessness. As Tim Keller puts it, the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life, the basics needed to just get to heaven and get my like get out of hell free card, right, that we keep in our wallets. It's the A to Z 
of the Christian life, which is to say that everything there is to know about what it means to follow Jesus comes back to our understanding of the gospel and how the gospel affects everything. So firstly, Paul has written this letter. He says, just simply to remind you of the most important thing, how the gospel changes everything. And then the second reason is connected to the first, but it has a little bit more force. He writes at the end of verse 15 and 16, or the beginning of 16, he's writing to them on account of the grace that was given to him by God to be a minister to the Gentiles. You see, again, though Paul did not plant this church, he was not the planting pastor and therefore didn't have any direct authority over or in the church. Paul still, though, had a unique apostolic calling from Christ himself over all of the churches, even those he didn't plant. In fact, that's very clear in the beginning of the letter, the way he opens. He says in verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So that's his calling. Then he goes on in verse 5. After a brief little reference about his understanding of the gospel, he writes, through whom we, him and the other apostles, have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, those who are in Rome. So you see what Paul is essentially saying is, yes, I I did not start the church there, but I am called. I have unique calling in my life as an apostle of Jesus. You see, the ministry of the apostles in the first century was a unique work that was done then. In Acts 2, we read of this short little description that many of you have probably read before. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, and they, that is the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So you see, God at that time called specific individuals for a specific work at a specific time in the church's history to establish what is what we would call today orthodox or correct Christian teaching. Now, more work would come later on in the first few centuries of the church because all kinds of heresies would come and try and lead God's people astray. And so councils were formed and creeds were formed out of that. But even those things were built upon the apostolic teaching found in the letters of the New Testament. So as a unique feature of the apostolic ministry, we read that many wonders and signs were done at their hands. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul clarifies. He says this actually validates the authenticity of someone's true apostleship. In verse 12, he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so my point in just highlighting all of this for you is just for a couple of reasons. First, people often wonder when they read a passage like this, how come we don't see signs and wonders as described in the New Testament that were being done by the apostles? And the answer is simple, because God was doing a unique work in those days to establish His infant church, vulnerable church, 
on the teachings of the apostles through these various signs and wonders. Now, what that does not mean is that there aren't still miracles today. Absolutely. God still does miraculous things in the world and in people's lives, but those things are to be distinguished from these things that Paul is describing here with these signs and wonders and powers that authenticate what is a true apostle. But the main reason why I'm bringing this up is because the work of an apostle primarily was to establish Christian doctrine and strengthen the churches in the gospel in order that they might survive out of that infancy stage and survive and go on and grow and and face those inevitable theological attacks that are going to come against her. After all, think about this. What good would it have been if Peter at Pentecost, who led 3,000 people to Jesus, if they all got saved, but then eventually there was no discipleship, there was no gospel growth, and then some false teacher came in and shared some other message and then led them all astray? Would Pentecost have even mattered? And the answer, of course, is no. It would have been pointless So what we are seeing in these first few verses is Paul describing his concern as an apostle of the church, not just to see people evangelized and not just to see churches planted, but to see them rooted and grounded in Christ and in his true gospel in order that they might survive the inevitable storms that are going to come against her. And friends, I can't think of a more relevant point today. We are seeing the effects of of that lack of discipleship all around us in our world. And and think about this. We can go out and share Jesus with as many people as possible, but if at the end of the day, we aren't at the same time doing what Paul purposed to do, which was to bring about obedience and faith in his converts through gospel discipleship and through explaining the gospel, then all we have really done, and pardon my expression, but we fatten someone up for slaughter from the enemy. That's all we've done. And we have seen the evidence of that over the last two years. In our world, when you look out and you see the things that are going on, churches, church leaders, Christians who have not had their minds, their, their worldview shaped by the gospel, have fallen victim to false narratives created by the enemy and dispersed by our culture. That is what has happened. All of a sudden, you are hearing Christians saying very non-Christian things, very unbiblical things, but they think it's biblical. They're saying things like this, our greatest issue isn't sin before God, our, our greatest issue is an oppressive nature of a Western civilization. And going on from there, if that's our greatest problem, then our greatest solution is not Jesus and repentance, instead it's revolution. They're saying things like, we need to stop preaching, start listening and learning, all of which is not Christian. Friends, a lot of what we've seen could have been avoided if churches over the last several decades, maybe the last hundred years or more, had taken discipleship seriously and pursued gospel depth as much as they have zealously and urgently pursued gospel breadth, getting the gospel 
out. I, w- I was just talking to Cody uh, two nights ago about a church plant that is about to close, not this weekend, because that would be sad to do on Mother's Day, but next weekend. Uh, they were a church plant that was going for seven years, and they're closing their doors. Um, and his comment was, when are we going to start rethinking the way we are doing church planting so that those churches that are planted actually live past five years or seven years and continue on to sustainability? And I couldn't agree more. And, and though there are always variables when starting new things in church planting, most of the time, church plants fail for this reason, a lack of gospel depth in the church leadership, the planting team, and in the membership of that church. And they cannot weather the storms that come against them. You know, every church will say this. Every church wants to make disciples. Every church wants to make disciples. The question is not, is your church making disciples? The question is, what kind of disciples is your church making? That's the question. And friends, it is the answer to that question as to why we want to do what we do here. Our desire here at Canby Christian is not to father a bunch of baby Christians that delay spiritual adulthood and never grow out of the kids' ministry in in a metaphorical sense. We want to see people grow and mature and be transformed into the image of Jesus so that when they go out into the world, they are not fully taken by the narratives that are in the world. Like Paul wrote here, uh, there in verse 16, we also know that one day we're going to stand before the Lord, all of us together. We're going to stand before the Lord in glory, and we want to offer up our lives and the lives of those people that we've been able to have an influence over, spiritually speaking, as an acceptable gift to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. A huge part of our job is to reach the lost, and we're going to talk about that next, but we also need to grow in gospel depth. This is why we study God's Word every week and center it on the apostolic teaching of the gospel of Jesus. It's why we sing songs that are both inspiring of worship, but also theologically informed and sound. And it's why we don't sing the like, Jesus is my boyfriend tunes that you hear on the radio. And those are nice maybe to sing or something in your car, but they're not theologically informed. This, this desire to make mature disciples of Jesus shapes all of our ministries. I, I know I, I just had a recent conversation with a couple in our church who help out in our kids' ministry. And they help in our kids' ministry because they are passionate about seeing five-year-olds know the gospel because they know those five-year-olds are going to grow up and they're going to face things in life and they want to build that foundation now. And that's what all the kids workers are doing every week. That should be our passion. We want to help them understand Jesus because we know what is up ahead and we want to prepare them for that. It's, it's why we develop leaders to know their Bible and how to teach it to others because we believe that when we do this, we're helping them to weather the storms and attacks that culture and the spiritual warfare are going to bring, but we also do it for another reason, because we know that when we experience gospel depth together, we actually experience the joy of true discipleship, of seeing the gospel affect not just my salvation and my thought about heaven, but even right now, your marriage, 
the way you spend your recreation time, everything that you do is transformed by the gospel, and that brings joy. And Paul wanted that for the churches he planted and those he didn't, and we want that for our church as well. So what we see here in the first part of his closing statements is that Paul establishes his work as an apostle of Jesus Christ, not because he was smarter, not because he was better looking than anyone else. That's why he was an apostle. He says it was because of grace, a free, undeserved gift that was given to him by Jesus to write with authority and clarity the things that he has written and hold all the churches of God accountable to them in order that they might grow in this gospel depth and experience gospel joy, which will result in gospel perseverance. However, we see that Paul not only had a gospel to see these churches grow deeper and and have roots in the gospel so that they can last, he also had a passion for gospel breadth. That is the gospel going out into all of the world. After all, he writes there in verse 19, one of the craziest verses you'll ever read in the Bible. He says that from Jerusalem and all the way around Illyricum, and that's how you say that word, Illyricum, he has fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And and basically, it was a missionary circuit that you can actually (coughs) trace it. Sometimes in the back of your Bible, there's a map of Paul's missionary journeys where he went around this massive area and region of the Roman Empire, and he was preaching the gospel and planting churches in the major city areas. And then once those churches were planted, the expectation was those churches would then reach out into sort of the more rural areas and plant more churches and make more disciples and that they would continue the work, but he would get that work started in this area. And look at what he said. He said, by this time I'm writing to you, I have done it. I have gone the whole circuit and I've even repeated it. I've gone back and visited the churches that I planted to see if they are healthy, and I've written letters while they're there. He's not just trying to start things and, okay, now you guys figure it out. No, he wants to help them all the way along that path. Paul was more than an apostle establishing gospel depth. He's not just some scholar in a dank basement, you know, writing his letters out and I don't know, sipping whiskey or something like that, like we think of some academic professor. He was that, I don't know, I doubt he was drinking whiskey. But he was also out among the people. He wanted the gospel to go to all of the nations. This is why he writes further in verse 20. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, and this is a quotation from Isaiah 52, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Now, there's just two things I want to highlight briefly from that section on what Paul considers effective gospel witness and mission. First, you got to get the content right, and you got to get the context right. First, the content, and I don't want to belabor this point because I think our church understands this well. He says it's his ambition to preach the gospel. In verse 18, he says a little more subjectively, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. In other words, evangelism or church mission isn't poverty relief. It isn't political activism. 
It isn't uh, feeding every single, you know, eliminating global hunger. Now, this would be great, and the church should be a part of all of these things. But to be honest, non-Christians can do those things. What the church of Jesus Christ is called to, what we are called to, is we have this unique work, which is to preach Jesus in order that they might hear and believe. That's what the church is called to do. Now, we are to be in these other areas as well, but uniquely, we have this call that distinguishes us from everyone else. So that's the content. We want to preach Christ. That's what we are called to do. Second, I want you to notice the context for this work. It's where the gospel has yet to go. And, and the reason why he writes it in this way is because, and we're going to see this more next week, it explains why he has not been able to visit them. It isn't for lack of desire, but because of the presence of evangelistic opportunity elsewhere. Uh, they already have the gospel, is what Paul is saying. And so you don't need my, the other part of my ministry, which is to be a missionary to the Gentiles. What you need is my apostolic ministry. And man, I can fulfill that by writing a letter to you, which is what he did. And yet he hopes to visit them one day on one of his missionary travels. We'll talk about that next week. Um, now, what does Paul say, real quick, what does he mean by, I don't want to build upon someone else's foundation. Well, what he doesn't mean is that a church's life uh, length, the length of that church's life is only as, as long as the person who planted it. That's not what he means. After all, all of us are in here today uh, because there was a church almost, or a group of people 130 years ago that started this church, Can Be Christian. And, and then there was another generation and another generation, and another generation of people who built off of that earlier work. And that church that started 130 years ago, they built it off of other people's foundation and others and others. So he he doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean don't carry on the work in that same location. After all, he would absolutely validate that. What he's saying is that it is inappropriate or not a part of his mission, and maybe there's a prescription for us in this, that we don't want to plant churches where there's already churches planted there and in existence. Instead, what we need to do is strengthen the churches that are there, not divide against them. But this is why Paul has yet to visit them, because he has two great concerns, a concern for the content of the gospel and the context of the gospel for effective mission into the world. But friends, the point I want us to understand and apply personally from this is that Paul was a man on a mission, no matter where he was, and so should we. And and we're going to pick up this discussion next week, so I'll kind of end that point there. My only challenge for us as we close is, is to think about that dual movement of the gospel this week and how it's intended for us first to to preach the gospel to ourselves. When you wake up in the morning, you wake up saying, God, I need you today like I needed you back then. And and I need you to help me to walk in holiness of life today, uh, to be aware of the sinfulness that exists there and, and to acknowledge your forgiveness and your grace in my life. I need all of that and to recognize I'm a child of God this week. That yes, you're gonna make mistakes 
You and I, we're going to make mistakes this week, but it's not about those things. It's about resting in the fact that God is for us and He is not against us. And then to recognize that not only is God for us, but that He wants to use us into the world, into the relationships, to share Christ with people who do not yet know Him. Why don't we pray and then we'll have a time of communion together. Father, thank You that we have uh, this letter that we have been studying now for the last year, but has shaped the lives of so many throughout church history. And we can go down the list of significant individuals who were converted through their reading of Romans and, and so many that we couldn't even possibly know. And so we are still being taught by the apostolic teaching of, of the Apostle Paul. <coughs> and we're thankful for that. We're thankful for the balance in his ministry. And I pray that we as a church would find that balance that we would grow deeper, but we would also grow wider in our desire to see the lost saved, not just in Canby, but even beyond. And so I pray that you would help us with that balance in our own lives and, and as a church as well. And we just commit ourselves to you this week and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.